is Our American Stories, and we're, well, just a couple of hours east of Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, is a town called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you just heard Leonard Skinner reference, Leonard Skinner reference this place in their iconic song. Well, southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville, this little town has created a very big sound. Some of the biggest names in soul, funk, pop, rock, country, every genre in between have recorded there. And our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit pay dirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car- uh, carpet that we've got out of a theater, etc., etc. Uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's You Better Move On in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sing the song a cappello. And uh, so, consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought, and of course immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons, and people like that. And the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove. And that song to me fit that groove, and he said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you right away. He said, that's great. So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber, and, uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of but who are you to tell her who to love? That's up to her. Yes, and the Lord above. You better move on. You better move on. After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans, Uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, Played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, et cetera, et cetera, but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. 
After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie K. Doe and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall. The track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is 
is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section, also known as the Swampers, as the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then, were black people. You gotta remember, this was in the 60s. And this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times, and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here. I had more trouble when I went to L.A. or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick's session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good, it was like printing money. And the hits just kept coming. Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl One to love you and give you the world Now you find that you've been misused Talk to me, I'll do what you choose I want you to tell mama This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. Rick Hall knew that he had a big, fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. Said, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two. Number one. 
Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seemed to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him, he didn't like. The songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable. So I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shows, and there was just a listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances which was enormous and the energy and the scenario of that record it, to me is wonderful to this day the projection just something that comes that leaps out of a record I call it the sonority of the record that it's different from the rhythm it's not exactly the sound it's not the songs it's the gestalt it's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly and to me, that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record. If you can convey that, it can't be defined or explained, but it's something that just grabs you. And so from then on, Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and love to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in... Um Muscle shows and these cats are these cats are really greasy. You're gonna love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in '66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording.
Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide, playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name is Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch. Uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time, and uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at 10 bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, here on Our American Story. American stories and we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals and we were all laughing in the studio Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall who's that guy playing guitar on that track and he says oh some hippie kid living in the parking lot and that was Dwayne Allman folks in the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock and now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big big music town in this country here again is Jesse. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers. In 1969, they left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed. 
but there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 79. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them. Because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original Swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I, I, I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. I played at the Tuscumbia Armory Square Dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Delrays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. At that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And uh, and the ones in Nashville were very hard to, to get involved with. It was like uh, almost impossible. For some reason, 
of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, LA, Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at... Uh Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass at around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford, was seeing uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. The recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, hmm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu- in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a swamper in 1991. A typical session here, I mean, if you if you're say you're a singer and you come in Muscle Shoals and you hire the A team, they'll listen to the demo, they'll write a chart out, and without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off, and then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle Shoals sound, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, you know, is with the musicians that that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound 
Fame Studios, and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. Everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players, who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on. And it's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That's some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And... Uh, Got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live, and I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in, in L.A., and uh, he asked me to play him some songs, and I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music, and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. He said, I'd like to demo that song, so they graciously flew me down here from L.A., and wasn't in a traffic jam for three days, and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A., and the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles, I just said, this is not living. And I packed up my family and moved here in 1980, where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section. Really, I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis, you go, that was cut in Memphis. Or you hear Motown, you go, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did I'll Take You There, Old Time Rock and Roll, Kodachrome, and Torn Between Two Lovers, <laughs> and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I mean, how versatile is that? 
And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody, everybody's every thought. It's just generally, you know, when you listen to When a Man Loves a Woman and, and a Do Right Woman or those things, they, the song breathes. You hear the song, you hear the artist. And, and that's what I was drawn to, especially after all my years with Bonnie where, you know, what was she? She wasn't country. She wasn't straight blue. You know what I mean? She was just this versatile, you know, combination of all of our influences that we loved the most. And I just felt Muscle Shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I love. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know... You know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful thing. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be, you know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want... Or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you the guitar player just plays very few notes. And that's one of the things I really love about it is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is if people hear a great song and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture you. We don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town. We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home. You know? But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could and, and I did. And it has served me well but along with that I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden, I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap, and people were calling me to, to write songs for them or write songs with them, and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so while I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. 
That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. I think the the muscle shows sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a, it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. I, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s, which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music. But it also had a little something else. It had a little funk to it, a little blues, a little rural, uh, homespun, organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis, Macon, other areas that were making, Detroit, Philadelphia, other areas that were making soul music. The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios for the very first time. For Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting, if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river, it's the space, it's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musician said over and over again that minimalistic approach... But they lead minimalistic lives, folks. That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small-town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar. And the artists, what a crazy idea. The musicians serving a song. 
If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music. The story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. After learning about Betsy Ross, he probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer, flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make or do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heff's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic. Heff told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? 
And so I got up and I approached the desk and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now that a B minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, the friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa. My mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you because she was really dead set against this. Two years later, I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call and it said, now the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president and he comes on the phone and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly addressed it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to Buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank my teacher and he said I guess if it's good enough for Washington it's good enough for me I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor and a seven term mayor of Napoleon Ohio. He spoke extensively as many as 200 engagements a year and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heft died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68. But his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heft's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. 
Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and every once in a while we like to go long with a good book and today we bring you John Bradshaw who wrote The Animals Among Us How Pets Make Us Human and John let's begin with a quote from your book quote today we relate to animals much differently than our forebearers did our thinking about animals has changed dramatically over the past century or so talk about that quote well, the animals that live in our houses, we've, we've changed the way we think about them because they've become companions rather than simply pieces of equipment. I mean, this is what uh, your average American dog was 150 years ago, was regarded as something that's useful to have around um, for whatever purpose. It might be herding, it might be guarding, it might be hunting. But uh, the any sort of companionship that that dog gave was kind of secondary, although it was important because the the bond between the dog and the, and the master or the mistress um, would have been an essential part of that working relationship. If the dog hadn't been bonded to the person looking after it and using it, then the whole relationship would not have worked. So, you know, we can't dismiss the whole thing of companionship. It's a common thread that runs all the way through. But nevertheless, it, the, the real purpose, the real function of these animals has changed to be one of almost complete companionship now. Um, and I think there's, a, there's another movement as well, if we're talking a little bit more widely about the kinds of animals that uh, we, we eat and we farm, um, then the rights of those animals, I think, uh, is probably only the last 150 years or so that those have been taken seriously by the majority of the population. And you now have very strong movements to you know, improve the way that uh, farm animals are kept. You have people who disagree entirely with eating meat, which would have been very unusual uh, in America. Um, certainly, even what 150 years ago, vegan uh, vegetarianism was almost unheard of. Um, the average American thought that chicken was a vegetarian dish. You know, the, the things have changed a great deal in the last century or so. So we've we've changed the way we think about animals in general. We've given them far more personality more rights, but very much more than that, the animals that are in our homes, in the suburbs and the cities, uh, dogs and cats particularly are there for companionship and not uh, as tools. Almost a quarter of households, you write, in the United Kingdom and over a third in the United States have one or more dogs and cats share a roof with 30% of U.S. families and about 17% of U.K. families. So we're going to focus mostly on those two animals. Why did they win the pet lottery, John? 
Well, I think the short answer, it's, it's rather a trivial one, but I think it's because they were there. We had domesticated the two species, the dog and the cat, for very different purposes. The cat domesticated in a sense, um, but, not, but still allowed to run pretty wild because we were keeping them, most of us were keeping them because they were good hunters, because they were good pest controllers. Whether that be in the city or in the in the countryside, they're, they're very good at controlling uh, vermin, rats, mice, and so on. Then we suddenly change our minds uh, about whether that was a good thing or not. But nevertheless, we had already tamed them to the point where they could live alongside us and act as companions. And of course, the same same with dogs. And and there, the relationship was more bound up with companionship because companionship was an essential part of the training of dogs, whether people who train dogs would like to admit it or not, it is a very important part. The dog pays attention to you because it is a very specially evolved animal. Uh, you know, other animals do not pay attention to humans in the way that dogs do. So um, they were kind of just, they were there. They were doing something else, but uh, were very readily able to adapt to the role of companionship because they were already they already understood humans to a certain extent in their own way, of course. Whereas most of the other species, uh, even the ones that you know people keep as pets, like rabbits and small furries and reptiles and fish and all those things, they kind of they haven't adapted, they haven't evolved to understand human behaviour in the way that those those two species, the dog and the cat, really have, and a dog especially well, uh, slightly better than the cat. By the way, you note in the introduction of the book that in the United States, owners spent in the year 2014 an estimated $60 billion servicing the needs of their pets. That's an astonishing number. It is indeed. And of course, a lot of that, I mean, some of it's to do with food, but the, the cost of feeding a pet animal has not increased greatly. There is more choice now than there was you know, when I first started out uh, working in this area 35 years ago or so. Um, there wasn't quite the range of pet products in the supermarket that there are today, but that isn't, hasn't been a step change. The real step change has been in what some people have called the humanization or personalization of pets. Some of that is the kind of accessories you can get for pets nowadays. Then there's the whole business of pet services, particularly in relation to dogs. Uh, people are realizing, dog owners are realizing that maybe their dog does uh, not like being locked up in their apartment or their house all day while they're out at work. And so there's a whole industry of dog walkers and so on who, who help you take care of your dog. These are service people. Um, and then there is the enormous expansion in veterinary services for both animals, but I kind of even almost more cats than, than dogs. Um, Certainly, you know, when I, again, when I first started out 30 years ago, there was really no feline medicine anywhere in the world. Cats, uh, veterinarians treated cats as little dogs. That was a mistake. Cats' nutrition is different. Their diseases are different. Um, their reaction to anaesthetics and painkillers and, and a whole host of things are very different. And so the, the science of feline medicine was born and the specialist uh, small animal and then feline specialist feline veterinarians uh, became you know a, a, a legitimate route for a professional so that's been a huge change and of course um, that's all been paid for by the owners of the animals uh, none of this would have been possible if owners had not been prepared to spend a lot more on their animals 
than they had done in the past. In the past, you know, the, if, a, if a cat or a dog became sick, and especially if a cat became sick, um, the veterinarian would often just say, well, it's only a cat, you know, uh, euthanasia is probably this, the kindest thing to do. Now there are a whole host of remedies, some of which are extremely effective for keeping cats going when, you know, their kidneys are packed up. I mean, this is a very common thing in cats. Their kidneys are probably the most vulnerable organ in their bodies. Um, and yet now we have diets and, and, and drugs and so on, which will keep a cat with failing kidneys going for many years in what we, we can only assume is, is reasonable comfort. So that's where owners have changed. They've changed in, in the sense of personalising their animals, of thinking their animals as much closer members of the family, much more valuable members of the family than they used to, and uh, using their pocketbooks to back that up. And let's continue with that thought, John. In your book, you write these words, quote, over three quarters of U.S. pets enjoy equivalent status to children. And beyond that, many people claim that pets, especially dogs, offer their owners health benefits. What does your research say on that? There was a big study done in Sweden. Swedish are very good at keeping health records. So there's a lot of data there, very reliable data about how long people are living and how sick they're getting and how many visits they make to the doctor and all those sorts of things. And if you take dog owners as a whole, then they seem to be in general healthier and live longer than people who've never had a dog or have not had a dog for many years. But when the, the people who did the study drilled down into the data a bit more and looked at the kind of dog that people had, there were some extraordinary anomalies. So Swedish people who own Labrador retrievers seem to live longer than, than Swedish people who have other kinds of dogs or no dog at all. But Swedish people who have lab mixes die younger than the average now, that doesn't make any kind of sense if it's the dog doing the, the uh, you know, the dog is really the cause of the, of the increased lifespan. And, and what the people who study these things are arguing now is, well, there are so many lifestyle factors that can come in when you people do or do not decide to have a dog. I mean, there are loads of things they have to think about, and any one of those could tip the balance in favour of it. So these are groups that are choosing themselves. There are dog owners, people who've chosen to have a dog, and there are people who don't want to have a dog or can't have a dog because they live in the wrong side of place or whatever it may be. This is not like a drug trial where you know, some people are given a pill um, which has got the active ingredient in and other people are also given the same identical looking pill which has nothing in it at all and they're asked to report their symptoms. Um, but generally, people kind of tend to confuse those two things. Um, and so they just say, well, if the dog must be the cause, because that's what um, is, is being reported on. And, and it's not that. There could be all sorts of different lifestyle differences. And the more people look into lifestyle differences, the, the more they realise that um, many of them have an effect on health and, uh, and therefore in, in, when added together in terms of uh, how long people live. And that a dog is just one of them. I'm not saying that having a dog isn't going to increase your lifespan, but I think it, it, you know, a lot of other things have to come along with it. And one of those is it has to be a very well-behaved dog. Um, because having a badly behaved dog is a, quite a stressful thing to, to do to to have, and whether that's um, you know that's generally because the person who has the dog doesn't really kind of understand what they've got, or maybe they get the wrong advice over training or whatever it may be. So the having the dog is kind of pleasant when you're watching TV in the evening, the dog's curled up on your feet, and less pleasant when you're out. Uh, in the dog walking park uh, and your dog is growling at every other dog and you're having to apologize so there are ways in which dogs could be health adjuncts to a healthy lifestyle but just going and getting a dog is not gonna is not gonna do it and when we return more of john bradshaw author of the animals among us how pets make us human this is our american stories 
And we're back with John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. We were just talking about how animals are members of the family, and along with that, you write, quote, Dog and cat owners consistently overestimate their pets' other human qualities and mental capacities. Somehow, having a personal relationship with an individual animal seems to involve imbuing it with characteristics that science would restrict to our own species. Talk about anthropomorphism and animals, John. Well, I think anthropomorphism is a natural way that we deal, our brains, our minds deal with um, things that we don't understand. I mean, if, when you and I are talking to each other, we both assume that we kind of uh, are operating, our brains are similar, we operate from a similar base, that the language we use is the same. And that's a pretty good assumption, of course. So uh, I can imagine what you're thinking, you can imagine roughly what I'm thinking, and that works most of the time. But when it comes to animal minds, I mean, the carnivore mind, which obviously dogs and cats are both carnivores, they're both related mammals, um, they both have a brain which is completely different to ours. It's a mammalian brain and it has some structures in common. The, the basic emotions are all there. The pieces of the brain that generate our basic emotions like fear and anxiety and joy and, and happiness and all those sorts of things, um, they're all pretty much the same. But the thinking bit of the brain, the thing, the part that we humans kind of use all the time and probably swamps all the other bits of our brain in terms of what we consciously experience, uh, is much smaller in both cats and dogs than it is in us. That uh, that simple anatomical fact, and lots of studies that have been done of, uh, more recently, particularly dogs in MRI scanners, showing that the most likely kind of world that a dog lives in is one that is basically dominated by the present. It's like almost like a kind of Zen Buddhist existence where you're detached from the past and you're not worried about the future and you're existing in the moment and experiencing it very richly. And I think... For the best of our knowledge, and I'm sure that knowledge will improve, but for the best of our knowledge now, that's kind of a, a good way of thinking about um, a dog. So the dogs are not thinking back to something they did wrong or indeed something they did right yesterday, and they're not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, so much as they are living in the present and reading human body language, which is the thing that dogs are better at than humans are in many instances, and certainly better than any other animal species. So they are they're, they're living in the present and I think if we assume that, as some people do, it's a sort of shorthand to say dogs are like children in terms of the way they can they can think and so on. There's a certain amount of truth in that. Uh, otherwise, it would be you know we, it would be crazy to say it. But there's not enough truth, I think, to make it a general rule. I think it's much more instructive and much better for the dog or the cat if we think of them as animals that have a different kind of brain and therefore a different kind of subjective world to the one that we have. Now, this is something which most owners, I have to say, in my experience, have to be um, kind of led towards. They had not realised, there was no particular reason why they should, but they had not realised just how different the world is as perceived through the the, well, I was going to say the eyes of the dog, but of course, it's really the nose is the important organ as far as the dog is concerned. But of course, they do use their eyes too. Their dog's world is not their world. Their cat's world is not their world. Physically, of course, it's the same. They're in the same room. But the messages that that room is giving them, uh, giving the human and the, and the pet, are quite different. Uh, and once you come to realise that, I think then stripping away some of the anthropomorphism is is beneficial to the animal and to the to the owner because the you know the, the, the owner understands the animal, the animal then understands the owner better as well. But it builds the bond. And that's so true. 
want you to talk about a guy named Antoine because he tried various pickup lines with women at a park with and without a dog. Talk about what we learned from this young man. Well, Antoine, uh, as his name implies, was French, and I don't think it's any coincidence that this study was done in France. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, leaving the humour aside, um, yeah, he was he was able to get more telephone numbers from young ladies that he, he approached when he had the dog with him than when he didn't have the dog. Um, that taken on its own might, might seem like a rather trivial study, but there have been all sorts of backup studies done in all sorts of different ways. Um, people standing on street corners and, and recording people spontaneously coming up to them people setting up fake profiles on internet dating sites um, which were which are identical except uh, one of them has uh, in fact the, the 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 particular one of the particular trials the man who was seeking contacts was uh, basically his description was not particularly pleasant it sounded like a rather a selfish kind of a guy but uh, adding the phrase and I've got a dog and I love my dog to the description you know suddenly he's getting 10 times as many uh, approaches um, to his profile so there is a genuine I think uh, robust kind of effect where men and probably women it's just um the, the research hasn't has really bi- has been biased in favor of of women approaching men in this instance um but we certainly can be sure that men acquire some kind of trustworthiness which uh, which the dog just having the dog gives them i mean the the person has no evidence that that you know this person is actually telling the truth or in the case of antoine uh, was that really his dog or, and did he look after the dog properly or well did, or did he not i mean they, it's not really a question of detail there's no detail there at all um it's just the presence of the dog seems to make the person seem so much more approachable and trustworthy and that is a that's a very odd thing why would a, an animal um descended from a wolf uh, suddenly make um people uh, trust you and i think that goes back way back to something that 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 went on before even perhaps there was domestication but certainly once there were domesticated dogs because dogs were the first uh, species to be domesticated that men who were seen to be good with dogs that was used as a proxy for you know that man is 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 good with dogs he knows how to empathize with a dog so he probably knows how to empathize with a women and b with with children and so that made that man a better marriage prospect yep in the chapter one of the family you write this the strength of the bond becomes most evident when a pet dies and then you write this which was fascinating in the words of one 30 year old lawyer after the death of her dog quote before he died i was so full of energy My friends were amazed how many different things I was able to accomplish in a day. And now I'm exhausted and I can't even bring myself to pick up my son from nursery school. So I leave him there and his teacher takes him to her home to stay with her for a few nights. Talk about animals and death. Well, one of the unfortunate facts about pet keeping is that they have much shorter lifespans than we do. So having a pet die is something that almost every pet owner will experience so it's probably not surprising that given that we do value the companionship of these animals so strongly that some people become grief-stricken almost literally as in the example you've just quoted um, at, at the loss of the animal at the loss of the company the change in routine I mean it's very similar to the, to the loss of a close human family member there are some key differences though one of them is that it, uh, the studies have shown that it doesn't. It can be just as acute, 
but it doesn't usually last quite as long. Uh, some some people will go on grieving for uh, the loss of human family members, particularly, I, I suspect, parents. But even worse, if, if somebody's child dies before they do, I think the, the grief can be extremely, not just extremely deep, but extremely long. It can last the whole the rest of that person's life. Grief for pets is not quite like that. Um, some people say I could, well, say at the time, or maybe even a month or two later, I can't, I couldn't possibly ever replace him or her. You know, he or she was a unique dog or cat, um, and there will never be another one like them. But then maybe a year later, you find that you know they have, they've been to the shelter uh, and and taken another dog or another cat or whatever, um, having recovered from the grief. Now we, you know, we don't do that with with humans. We do not deliberately seek out surrogate relationships or replacement relationships for the ones that we had with people who've died. We regard those people as being utterly new, unique, I think, and irreplaceable. Whereas with pets, although we do regard them as personalities and having rights of their own, we, I think there is a some sort of blurring there as well. We do also regard them as being part as, as a dog uh, or a cat or whatever they would happen to be and therefore eventually once the initial shock of losing the animals gone then then we can uh, move on and and replace them and when we come back the final installment of our conversation with john bradshaw author of the animals among us how pets make us human available on amazon.com more after these messages continue with john bradshaw author of the animals among us how pets make us human and john we've talked a lot about how we've elevated the role of animals in our lives but it's not all good all the time you wrote about leonard simon a psychoanalyst practicing in new york in the 1980s who interviewed hundreds of randomly selected pet owners this is what he said quote not everything i heard was benign with some people, I became convinced that their lives would have gone altogether differently and better if there had been no pet. All too often I heard of wasted years and stagnant lives in which almost everything a person did revolved around his animal. I heard of divorces that might never have happened, and I heard of some that probably should have happened long before, and after the pet died, they finally did. I heard of children that were neglected for the sake of a pet, I heard of children that might have been born if there had been no pet. I heard of children that were bitten by dogs that had given clear signs of serious jealousy, but whose owners were unable to part with them. Talk about this downside. Well, I think there's a bias in the reporting of pet ownership. Most of the people who study pet ownership are enthusiasts for it. There are few people, one or two, but they tend to be kind of marginalised, who are much more sceptical. But there does seem to be a kind of relentlessly upbeat thing about, about pet ownership, which has been going on now for quite a long time. You know, it isn't straightforward. And I think the danger is that by putting a, a rose-tinted haze around pet, uh, pet ownership, there's a possibility, in fact, I've, I've seen it happen, of drawing people in who 
really have not thought too hard about the downside, the potential downsides, um, the difficulties, the expenditure, um, the, the, what, what to do if their dog is not the one that they hope that does not have the personality they hoped it would have, all those kinds of things. So uh, there is a there is a risk to the pet, I think, if um, or to the pet population anyway. If if we um, you know, if we make pet pet ownership look too good and too beneficial. Uh, and that give the impression that you don't have to put too much effort in and you'll get loads of benefits. Because the reality is, particularly with dogs, is that you do have to put a lot of work in. And the the work is very rewarding. I'm not saying it's not, but I think there are some people who go into dog ownership without fully grasping the amount of effort they're going to have to take and the amount of money they're going to have to spend. There's a long-running study in the UK called the Mass Observation Project, which started in World War II. Believe it or not, it's still running. So this is basically... Uh, hinges on people who are recruited from all walks of life and write diaries. It doesn't tend to be based on questionnaires. It's much more based on what people actually spontaneously want to say. Each year, the, th- the theme of the of the project changes. And a few years ago, it, it was pets. And a colleague of mine at Warwick University in the UK, Nikki Charles, did some extraordinarily groundbreaking work, which really mirrored what the New York study showed which is that there are some people who talk about their animals you know, as if they are members of the family and they wouldn't have got, uh, been without them. But then you'll find uh, a widow saying, well, when my husband died, I was finally able to take his dog to the pound because he'd been a real nuisance and he had stopped us going on holiday and we wanted, I wanted to move house and we couldn't move house because of the dog. And now... You know, I'm released from that and uh, I can move nearer my, my children and I, you know, I don't have to live the way I used to live. And the way I used to live was really dictated by my husband, but, but and his, the way he lived was dictated by his dog. So there are equally uh, stories. They don't tend to get repeated very often. And I think that um, has, has kind of unbalanced the picture a bit. You note a bunch of doggy disputes and doggy hassles uh, that can make life worse for pet owners. And here are a bunch of them. What to do with the dog when going away on a holiday. The fact that the dog hasn't been walked or who should walk it. Whether the dog should be allowed on the bed. Whether the dog should be allowed upstairs. Who should clean up the mess in the backyard. Who should train the dog. Who should groom the dog. And my goodness, household damage caused by the dog. But despite all of that, you write this. Given all the hassles, obligations, and expense incurred by pet ownership, there must be a plus side. On balance, pets make us happy. Yeah, I think you know pets do make us happy, and that is, um, I think, if you just simply, it's 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 a truism, but I think it's, but you know, like like a lot of truisms, it's true. You talk to pet owners, as I do, um, and they the first you know, thing they really tell you, they may tell you in all sorts of different ways, is that is the joy they get from the the company of the animal. It's kind of a difficult thing to pin down, and and uh, people have tried to pin it down in terms of of health benefits. I think that's missing the mark. I think the um, there is a um, the social side of it, the simple uh, fact that you have a companion who is reactive to you in a way that um, you've kind of worked out is going to work for, for you, the owner. I mean, you know, obviously dogs are not responsive, are more responsive than cats in general, although there are some cats which are more responsive than the least responsive dogs. This, but, but in general, um, people who want a relationship with an animal that is, uh, they can pick up and put down, you know, they have busy lives, but they do want an animal to come home to in the evening. I mean, maybe they're just 
they find a relationship with a cat is better because they haven't got the hassles of uh, that come with particularly with owning a dog. So those relationships kind of evolve and they work themselves out. And um, if they do work themselves out, in the majority of courses, they, cases of course they do, then there, there is a genuine sense of companionship and uh, and joy that people get from it. Why they get that joy, I think, is uh, is you know is a difficult question to answer. And one of the explanations that I've come up with in the book is that we f- we find these animals attractive not just because they're cute, although undoubtedly they are, not just because we enjoy looking after them because we, because we do, but because they're hairy. Uh, and it's a it's a scientifically proven fact that when people sit down with their dog or their cat. Um, and everything else is good around them, um, they find stroking the animal very relaxing. Um, and uh, you know, the, the physiology backs that up. That it's not just, they're not just making this thing, these things up. Um, there is a genuine change in what's going on inside the body, inside the heart, inside the, the, the hormones that are going around their bloodstream. So um, this is a genuine change in, in the, the, the way the body is working. And it's reflected, of course, in in the emotional change that you feel more relaxed and happy about the world. Let's close things off with the uh, last story in the book, and it's a personal one, John, and it regards and it relates to your granddaughter, Beatrice. Talk about that. Beatrice is a well, she's my granddaughter. I I would say that, of course, that she's a very bright girl, but um, she has a fascination for animals, which I'm I'm not surprised she has. Um, But because I think many children of her age do and they in the classroom, part of the the program um, was to bring in some some hen's eggs that were going to hatch. They kept them in an incubator in the classroom and then every morning they'd go in to see how many of the eggs had hatched and one or two instances the eggs actually hatched during school time and they could watch it happening. And so this, you know, is, is a, I think, um, is for urban children like Beatrice. She lives in the town. She doesn't see a lot of animals. Is, is essential to understanding where things really, you know, how things really work, that not everything comes out of, uh, of, a, of an iPad or a phone or whatever, that, that there is... Real life is is there, and it's 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 messy and uh, and you know and, and fascinating at the same time. Um, so she and all her classmates were absolutely fascinated by these these chicks that emerged. Um, I mean, they're little fluffy things. Obviously, they're very cute. Uh, they make little peeping noises, which I think are part of their appeal, and they move in a kind of clumsy way. So that they're cute because they move like babies. So um, so that you know is, is all part of the is all part of the appeal. But it, it does show, I think, how it. These things, are, they didn't have to be encouraged to do it. Um, these are things that are intrinsically fascinating and that human beings do have uh, an instinctive fascination for animals. I'm not sure, sure we all do because there does seem to be some genetically based variation, but um, the majority of us do. And I think for the future, then we need to to nurture this particular instinct because if we don't, I think children will grow up with no empathy for animals because they really don't understand what they are. Uh, they just see them in two dimensions on a TV screen or whatever. Um, they don't understand just how real a real animal is uh, in, in the sense that, um, you know, it, it's there and you can smell it and you can hear it and see it and touch it, uh, which is so much more real than, than the, the best simulations that we can generate through computers today. And thanks to John Bradshaw for joining us and spending this time with us. And special thanks to him writing the book, The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. Go out and order it on Amazon and buy two. Get one for a friend, 
I'm promising you they'll say thank you. There are so few books that can hold your attention on a subject so big and so smart and so close to all of our hearts because I don't know many people who hate animals, and they're odd ducks to me. And by the way, if you get a chance, go to Our American Network. We've done a lot of really good book interviews. They're all up there for you to listen to free, to download onto your phone, listen on a long drive. Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, is one of my favorites, and it tells the story of American leisure time in the 20th century, actually. Another great one of Beards and Men, the revealing history of facial hair, and that's by Christopher Olston Moore. We also spent an hour with Richard Zacks, who wrote Chasing the Last Laugh, How Mark Twain Escaped Debt and Disgrace with a Round-the-World Comedy Tour. We also spent an hour with David McCullough, And the Wright Brothers, one of the best books that I've ever read. And my goodness, it just doesn't get better than that story of these two sort of crazy bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio. And they are the ones, oddly enough, who get first to flight. Not all those PhDs and scientists and fancy pants trying to get to space first and fly first. Also, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern World by Tim Harford. And another personal favorite, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. And that's from the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal, Greg Ipp. All of those books available on OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and thank you to John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. This is Our American Stories.